You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. It can cost more than $800 million to develop a new drug, and it can take more than 10 years from the time it begins in the lab till the time it reaches the medicine cabinet. Welcome to today's Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Joel Heller, and with me today is Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer for Partnership for Cures, a public charity that drives better treatments and cures to patients by testing already approved drugs and other therapies for new uses. Welcome. Thanks, Dr. Heller. These numbers are consistently on the rise every decade. What was it that motivated the creation of the Partnership for Cures? Well, we noticed that uh, billions of dollars were going into research every year, and yet nobody was really getting cures out to the patients. And when you look at what's happening in government, industry, academia, the systems really don't seem like they're set up to help patients who have disease right now. So the founders of our public charity, uh, both of whom have serious diseases, uh, decided that they would put in a significant amount of money to start and motivate other donors to join them in looking for ways to accelerate the search for better treatments and cures for patients who have disease right now. How long ago did this charity start? Well, it originated in 1998 as a private operating foundation, which meant that uh, most of the money we were spending was from our original founders. After several years, we thought about doing this for other people, and just at the end of 2005, we got approval from the IRS to form a public charity called called Partnership for Cures. So we've been doing this Two Years to Cures initiative, the projects that really can speed cures to the patients, for about uh, well, a little over a year now. Have other charities like this existed in the past? Did you have a model that you're working on, or did this all kind of have to be dealt from scratch? We sort of developed this from scratch. We spent a good part of our early years looking at what other not-for-profits were doing to see where we could fit in without duplicating other people's efforts. There's a lot going on that's great in the not-for-profit world, and there's no reason to have another person doing the same thing that's already working. So we looked mostly at what could we do. We start out looking at disease-specific ideas and then realized that really what for us seemed the most important was to push whatever the best research was to the patients who needed it now, regardless of the disease. So we don't actually do all of our research in the diseases of uh, our founders or even any of our board members. We look for the best research. There really wasn't a model for this, and we kind of stumbled on it by accident. We had a couple of programs that funded hypothesis-based research, new ideas that didn't have any data. You don't have data, you can't get money. You don't have money, you can't get data. So we gave the money to generate some initial data. And a couple of these projects were these little pilot clinical trials using existing drugs for new uses. And we realized that they could make a really quick impact. And so what we sort of stumbled on by accident has become something that we're doing on purpose. So obviously this isn't a billion-dollar type of charity. How do you fund these things? Although there are enough projects out there that if we had, uh, you know, multitudes of funding that we already have, we could fund them. We'll fund uh, this year probably between a million and a half and $2 million worth of research. Over our lifetime, we funded about $11 million of research That research has gone on to generate another $25 million worth of follow-on research. The typical project that we fund takes two years or less, costs about $250,000 or less, and is designed as the outcome to make a direct and significant impact on some patient population. Where do these ideas spring from? There's three different ways that these projects come to us. One that we call translational research. So a drug will be used in a particular disease, and we'll find something out about a different disease 
or something out about the drug that'll make it seem sensible to use it for a new type of disease. And we did a project like that in a uh, blood disease called ALPS, Autoimmune Lymphoproliferative Syndrome. And it's not a blood cancer, but it's like a blood cancer. Something we found out about that disease recently was that mTOR is a target that's involved in that disease. And so rapamycin, which is obviously an, an mTOR drug, might have been a, a good drug to use for that. So we had a clinician scientist who set up a project for that, and we tested it first on the mouse and then in patients, and it's turned out to actually have significant impact on that patient population. A second type we call acceleration treatment. We'll have end-of-treatment salvage therapies that look like they might actually be moved up into earlier in a, uh, in a patient's disease. Thalidomide might be a good example of that in multiple myeloma, where it was used as a last course of therapy five, six, seven years ago. And a couple of our clinicians decided, well, maybe we should move that up and see what would happen if we used it as a frontline drug. And it was successful and recently got approved by the FDA for that. And the last type, and one that I think is most interesting for your listeners, is um, something we call validation research, where a clinician has actually discovered something in the clinic, either through an anecdotal success that they've had trying a new drug, or sometimes based on an observation of a side effect of one drug on a new patient population. And we've tested several of those. In fact, we have a project that's out for funding right now using Actos, which is a diabetes drug for autism in a patient population that was being treated. Some endocrinologists just had uh, prescribed Actos for these autistic patients type 2 diabetes, and their neurologist noticed some significant behavioral changes and began to test that drug. Those are the three main ways, but uh, for your uh, audience, the idea of taking something they've seen that works in the clinic for them and then getting it really tested scientifically makes good sense. What, what kind of communication setups do you guys have? We take research proposals almost any time, and you can go right on our website, www fourcures.org, the number four, the word cures.org, and uh, go to research funding, and you can see the application process. It's all electronic and doesn't take very long to fill out an initial application. Typically, what we do is we'll hook up those clinicians with one of our institutional research partners, and we have more than 40 of those all across the country, where a clinician would work with a researcher to set up a project and establish a budget and an outcome, and then we would look for funders to try and fund those projects. Are, are these university-related? Are these um, pharmaceutical-related? Where are these 40 come from? Uh, they're all research institutions that you would know, Mayo, Stanford, Harvard, University of Illinois, University of Chicago. We can establish a relationship at almost any institution. So if a clinician was close to an institution we don't currently have a relationship with, it wouldn't be hard for us to establish one. How was going about establishing funding for you to help with the research different from the standard way someone gets their research funded? If you're a research scientist at a university, typically you're applying for a grant program either through the government or a large disease-specific not-for-profit. You can get money from the pharmaceutical industry, but usually they come to you with the drug testing rather than you going to them. Our process is faster and uh, certainly more transparent, and the review process for us really looks at innovation and opportunity as a, uh, a top level, something that we're very interested in. Whereas if you go through some of the NIH funding or even some of the large nonprofits, those innovative high-risk projects are usually scored lower because they're, they're worried about uh, spending their money in a way that uh, they can go back to the people that gave them the money and show progress. You know, these are risky projects. Some of them work and some of them don't. But if even uh, 20 or 30 percent of these projects actually make a 
impact on patients in two years or less, that's really significant for that patient population. So you said you've been up and running since 98. Can you give us some of your success stories? Sure. Well, I, um, I mentioned a couple. Um, we funded some of the early research in moving thalidomide from end of treatment until earlier in treatment and helped uh, produce some of the evidence that got that drug approved uh, by the FDA, that ALP story that I already told you. There's a story, uh, one of our success stories is in a disease called familial dysautonomia, which is a genetic disease of Ashkenazi Jews where uh, the kids that have this disease are have a misfolded protein called ICAP. Uh, donors were able to fund a project at a lab at Fordham. A couple of natural substances, uh, uh, tocotrienol, a vitamin E, and uh, extract of green tea, EGCG, combination of those help these kids go from about 5% active protein to about 30%. And uh, we're doing research now where it looks like there's a new substance that could get them up to about 90%. So those are, you know, three of the stories that have worked. We've also helped uh, produce an instrument that can check anemia by looking at the conjunctive of the eye and a uh, an instrument that would check for brain trauma uh, without having to uh, go and, and cut a hole in the in the patient's head looking through the eyes. And a uh, an instrument that would um, check for brain trauma uh, without having to uh, go and, and cut a hole in the in the patient's head looking through the eyes. So you have a success with this. How do you get that out to the general public? Are you in peer review journals? Where where is this information being disseminated? Most of the research does get published in peer-reviewed journals, and uh, that's a, a bonus and a bane. The problem is that uh, you have to wait to get published, and you know, even the researchers that work through us who are interested in getting this information out realize that if they publish it in a way that's not in a journal first, then it's hard to get it published in the journal second. And if they don't publish, it affects their standing at the institution. It's one of the issues that we've begun to work on in another area of our foundation is how you create this kind of rapid information uh, dissemination and transparency without uh, ruining the opportunity for the researcher to get published and recognized for the work that they do. So I just want to be clear. So part of the the emphasis of what you're doing is to try and get answers out there as quickly as possible. But if you go through the peer review process, that adds time before it's disseminated. If you get that information out somewhere else, um, television, that type of thing, that then is looked down upon by the peer review journal, cuts back on the actual, what the research can get out of it. Is that where we're going with this? Absolutely. You know, there are some sort of uh, workarounds that people do. You know, they're sort of the peer-to-peer communication where a researcher will talk to other clinicians that are working in that area and say, you know, that I've discovered something, it's just new, and, uh, you know, we're going to be publishing it. And so the grapevine sometimes can be the best source of getting information out to clinicians. But that typically, that grapevine is within the university setting. So what you're really impacting is university-based clinicians rather than office-based clinicians. And uh, we, we haven't worked out yet a good system for office-based clinicians to get information until it's published in the peer-reviewed journals. And it also means that they have to, you know, actively look at those journals. And sometimes the information's not published in the journal you'd expect it to. You know, if an endocrinology issue and it gets published something besides the, the main endocrinology journal. So unless you're subscribing to a lot of different ones or going to the meetings, as a clinician, you might miss it. So how do you plan to address that in the future to get it, these exciting new things out there where they can actually get used right away by a greater number of people? Well, we've been talking about using the media and the websites to try and get some of this information out there. And Certainly, patients could be helpful in it. You know, if I had to to tell you what what I thought were the stronger of the two 
communication networks, physician to physician or patient to patient, I'd uh, I'd say that the speed of messaging goes faster patient to patient. And so that often will be the mechanism of choice. You know, then the difficulty is you've got the patient armed with the information, has to go back to the physician, and the clinician actually has to have someplace to go to verify it. And that would be hopefully our website where we'll be able to publish this information sooner than it gets published in the peer-reviewed journals. The other thing that I would say is a step in the right direction. In, in most of the print peer-reviewed journals, once your paper is accepted for publication, they now have web-based sort of preview areas set up so that, uh, you know, that can speed things up anywhere from three to nine months in the, in the publication cycle. Are these things currently available on your website? Yeah, a lot of the, the information that we've talked about already is available on our website. And uh, anybody can talk to us by uh, contacting us through email on the website or giving us a call. I'd like to thank Dr. Bruce Bloom, who's been our guest today. I'm Dr. Joel Heller. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions regarding this or other shows, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.